All right, if you've got a Bible, grab it, open it, turn it on, follow along on screen in your outline, or use the Central Church app. Um, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. That's where we're going to be at again today. Uh, that's where we've been at the past uh, three weeks. Uh, the, and this is week number four of our series called Great Expectations. Um, the entire series is out of 2 Kings chapter 5. We've been talking about this guy named Naaman, um, and we've been talking about how he had these expectations, how these, these things were happening in his life of, of who he was and what he wanted. Um, he probably had these plans. He probably understood what his life was. And, and then God shows up. And and God begins to move in his life. And it starts out when he gets this little spot of leprosy and everything everything changed. He he became he went from who he thought he was and everything about himself to to now there's something completely different going on in his life. And and we've been talking about how that really plays out in our lives. We we have these plans and we have these expectations and we, we think something's going to to work out the way that we want it to, not understanding that God's ways are greater than our ways. God's plans are greater than our plans. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And, and, and when we learn how to submit to that, well, life just gets a little bit more simple. Not easier, um, but it's simple because we understand who's in control and who's really taking us from where we are to where he wants us to be. And so we like to say that everything's better with Jesus at the center. It's not easy. Um, that's difficult to do, but when we can put Jesus first in our lives, great things happen. And so um, as we continue through this, and we'll end it next week, um, we really want to look at where we are individually, and, and what our expectations are. And, and when, we, when we move into something and we think about what it is that we want, and, and when we do something, thinking about what do we want, how do we want this outcome to be? And, and let me, let me kind of just set it up like this. I'll, I'll ask a question. Um, if you've been around for a while, you know I love to start out messages with questions. And I do it for two reasons. Number one, you know this, I tell you this all the time, I want everybody to get on the same page. Um, but the real reason, number two, is I like to ask questions that make church people uncomfortable. So we can all understand how incredibly jacked up we really are, uh, that nobody here is perfect. And so here's my question. Um, and in this church, I always encourage you when I ask a question to be honest. It's, it's okay to be honest. And on this one, notice my hand will be up, so it's not bad. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. It's, it's not a bad question. And so when I ask you this question, I'm not judging you because I'm one of you. I'm confessing. That's what I'm doing right now. So you can feel the freedom to confess too. How many people here you've ever purchased a lottery ticket? Raise your hand. Woo, look at that. I love my church. Now, I know somebody's going to go, I don't gamble. <laughs> Have you ever put your money in the stock market? I know somebody's going to say, that's not a gamble. <laughs> let me show you my pre-2008 portfolio. Let me let you take a look at that thing. Let me, let me talk, let you talk to a couple of my friends of mine who back in 2008, like, lost everything. And they're broke and homeless now. They would love to come live with you. All right? But anyway, the lottery, isn't it crazy when it gets to, like, a billion dollars? Like, every time it gets that high, I'm like, somebody's got to win, aren't you? Like, and so I get a ticket. Now, absolute complete transparency, I don't buy one. I buy, like, 20. Um, anybody else? Anybody else? And, and this is what you say. Is this not what you say? Do you not tell God, God, if you let me win, I promise I'll give some money to the church. Do you say that? 
That's why God don't let us win, because we're all a bunch of liars, right? Like, we know we're going to have that. Every time, every time, every single time, like, that's my thought, and, and, and I think that. I remember having a conversation with a guy one time. By the way, everybody has this guy in their life. Not the same guy, but everybody has this guy. And listen, please don't be this guy like, or this girl. Like, please just don't be this person. Don't do it. Um, but this guy told me, he's like, you know, if you win all that money, you got to pay taxes on it. That's the same person that, like, we can see a bunch of people get saved. We can see, like, 100 people get baptized in the church, and they say, can't wait to see the water bill. How are you going to pay for that? Like, listen, dude, if I want a billion dollars and I have to pay, like, 500 million in taxes, I still have 500 million. That's a good day, right? And, and I started thinking about this the other day, and it caused my mind to go back to something I heard years ago. And when I first heard it, I didn't believe it. And so I had to dive into it, do research for myself. Now, statistics on this are all over the place. So you can Google this today, right now, whatever you want, and, and uh, you, you might find something different, but you'll find something the same because it's all over. Many of you have heard this before, but it's true. Within a few years of winning the lottery, 70% of the lottery winners are broke. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? Like if somebody came up to you today and gave you $100 million today, like just handed you $100 million, like just here it is, like you don't have to pay taxes on it or anything. You're $100 million in the clear. None of us would ever think like, man, I'm going to be broke one day. We, we would think there's no way I'd ever spend this money. But, but imagine that. Within a few years, it's all gone. I'm sure 100% of those 70% never thought they'd be broke because they hit the lottery. And then they went back to being broke, having nothing. We see this happen all the time. You ever seen it happen with a professional athlete? Have you seen that? See it happen with like former movie stars. They have all of this money and then they get out of the business or they retire and and then they go broke. This just goes to show that money isn't everything right? I mean, we're made for more than this world and what, what this world can offer us, because everything this world offers us is temporary, and it doesn't fully satisfy us. Amen? And so this really started to, to get me to think about the church and working in the church. Now, I've been working in the church world um, in some way, shape, form, or fashion um, on a staff since 2000, which means um, I've been doing this for I don't know how long that is. That's a while, right? 24 years. Um, and over all those years, I've discovered something. When, when people meet Jesus, see, some people meet Jesus and they follow him for the rest of their lives. Now, they don't always get it right because following Jesus isn't always easy. Sometimes following Jesus is three steps forward and two steps back, right? Sometimes we fall on our face. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we have to crawl through the pig pen. But, but we, we follow Jesus, and it's not always easy. It's not always pretty. Sometimes it's messy. It's not always messy, but sometimes it is. But no matter how it goes, it's always worth it to follow Jesus. But what I've seen, and and you've seen this too, is some people meet Jesus. And and after a while, that, that feeling. You know what I'm talking about? Like that, that, that first time feeling, that excitement, it begins to, it begins to fade away. And, and that's why we have to, to lean into desire and discipline. You've you got to have both things. You've got to have desire and you've got to have discipline because if we simply have desire and no discipline, we'll meet Jesus and we'll have that excitement and, and we'll be all on fire. But if we don't have the discipline, we'll slowly begin to drift away. And then eventually, if we're not careful, we wind up at a place where we would literally classify ourselves as spiritually broke, a place where 
we're not close to Jesus, a place where we feel like he's not doing anything with us and in us and through us. In fact, we'll start believing the lie that somehow he's disappointed in us. We'll believe the lie that he doesn't want to have anything to do with us. And if that's you or if that's ever been you, 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 or you know somebody who maybe is in that situation, then I want to encourage you today. I, I want to talk to you today about three things that I wish somebody would have told me when I first met Jesus. Now, it's taken me over 20 years to learn these three things I'm going to share with you today. But I fully believe if somebody would have sat me down and shared these three things with me, I would have been set up for spiritual success early on. And I believe it'll set you up for spiritual success as well if you can buy into these three things. Because it's a struggle. The journey is a struggle no matter where you are. And listen, from time to time, the reason I'm sharing this today in this message is, number one, it happens in the text. But number two is we really need to be reminded of these things or we need to be told, hey, these things are okay. It's all right to struggle. And so, quick review of where we've been the last several weeks. Again, Second Kings chapter 5 is about a guy named Naaman who has what disease? Leprosy, right? Leprosy is when your skin is falling off, literally. It is a bad thing. There is no cure for leprosy. There is no hope for leprosy. You are going to die. You are going to die a painful death. It is, it is horrible. And Naaman is told by a servant girl. Remember that. Don't, don't miss that. We're going to really talk about that and hammer that home next week as we finish this out. A servant girl says, hey, there's this prophet in Samaria who will heal you. But remember, he, he gets it wrong. Remember, he goes to the wrong place. He goes to the palace, and he sees the king instead of actually going to the prophet. He, he misses everything. But I, but I told you that God is patient and kind, that all the time we're going to mess it up. Like, we're going to hear God say, hey, this is what I want you to do. This is exactly what I want you to do. And we're going to be like, ah, that sounds pretty good, God. And, and I'll do part of that, but not all of that. And so God says, hey, Naaman, you got close, but really what I need is I need you to come over here. And so with all that in mind, with where we've been, let me share with you these three things. Um, And again, these are three things that I have learned and three things that we really need to be reminded of as we go in our journey with Jesus Christ. Point number one is this. When we receive Jesus, what we need to understand is the work of God begins immediately in our lives. When we receive Jesus Christ, when we pray that prayer, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, God's work begins immediately in our lives. And it continues to work. Like, if you met Jesus last week, here's what I know about this past week. God has done something in your life. I mean, I know he has. I know he has. It hasn't been easier But it's been better because now you have Jesus Christ in your life. And as we talked about last week, everything in you becomes stronger. There's this resistance to temptation or or there's this awareness of sin. There there are these things that are happening and and they might be confusing and you might not understand them. That's because the work of God and and God taking you from where you are to where he wants you to be. God molding you and, and growing you into the person that he's created you to be is happening because it happens immediately when we receive Jesus into our lives. You know why? Because God's got a plan for you. He really does. Every single one of us created on purpose, with a purpose, and for a purpose. And, and people ask me all the time, well, how do I know when God's done with me? You die. That, that's it. Like, because if you're still breathing, that, that's how you know he's not done with you. When God's done with you, you die. When you die, he's done. It's that simple. So if you're still breathing, which is everybody, right? 
right? Anybody not breathing right now? Raise your hand. We've got security team. We'll run in here and take care of you. If you're still breathing, he's still got a plan for your life. There's still stuff for you to do. And so if you're not dead, God's not done. I love it that you know that. But here's the problem. Every single person in this room, when it comes to what God wants to do in us and the work God wants to do in us and through us, well, let me ask it this way. How many of you would say that you're selfish? Raise your hand. Not as many people as lottery people, all right? That's not. How many of you are sitting next to somebody that should have raised their hand? Don't raise your hand. Don't do that. That would be awkward. We're all selfish people, all of us. And I'm not judging you, and I'm not cracking on you. We're all selfish. All of us are born that way. I love it when people say, oh, kids are born so pure and innocent. You ain't got no kids. Seriously. Did any parent in here ever have to teach your kid how to say the word mine? No. They just show up, and they're doing all this stuff, and they're playing, and everything's great, and then you jump down on the floor to play with their Power Rangers with them, hypothetically speaking, and they pull it away and say, no, mine. (laughs) It's incredible how selfish we are. Now, keep that in mind with Naaman, because Naaman is incredibly selfish. He's arrogantly selfish but everything around him reinforced that because if you remember it like he's literally essentially second in command of the entire country he's the head of the army and so when Naaman walked into a room people bowed down to him like he had riches he, he had servants for his servants that's how you know you're rich that's rich people problems when you got servants for your servants everywhere he went people bowed down to him People respected him. They honored him. They took care of him. And as we're about to see, Naaman let all of that get to his head, and he's highly selfish. So we read this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to point some things out that are just absolutely fascinating to me that we didn't talk about. Remember, Naaman is, is told by the king, like, hey, there's nothing I could do for you. And so he takes off, and he finally gets to Elisha's house to see Elisha. To see who? Elisha. Right, there's two people in the Bible, Elijah and Elisha. They kind of interlap a little bit, and everybody gets them confused. This is Elisha, and, and watch what happens. Verse ten. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him. This didn't make Naaman happy, because he went to see who? Elisha. If you roll up at Elisha's house to see Elisha, who do you expect to roll out and talk to you? Elisha. That's who you want to come out and see you. And, and Elisha basically just sends this dude to text messages. Like, watch this. He, he sends a messenger, doesn't even go to see him. And, and, and remember, Naaman is arrogant. Naaman is selfish. Naaman is used to people honoring him and respecting him and bowing down to him, meeting all of his needs. And, and, and Elisha doesn't even come out to see him. He sends a messenger. So Elisha's probably sitting in his house. He knows Naaman's outside. Somebody tells him, hey, Naaman's here. Naaman's here to see you. He's a prophet, so he knows why Naaman's there. And he's like, hey, um, that's all right. You, you, you right there. You're not doing anything. Put, put that down. Go outside and tell Naaman this message. And this is the message Elisha sends out. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored, and you will be healed of your leprosy. Send a messenger to tell him how to be healed. Doesn't go out. This this man of God who has the word of God, who can tell him exactly what to do, doesn't come out and doesn't do anything, sends a messenger. 
Now remember last week I told you that washing yourself in the Jordan River can be seen as a metaphor for salvation. And we talk about all the time that seven is the number of completion. And so we said basically, essentially, you can say completely immerse yourself in Jesus and you'll be healed. Completely immerse yourself in Jesus and you'll be set free. Completely um, immerse yourself in Jesus and you'll be restored. And we saw people receive Jesus last week. That was awesome, wasn't it? Like, I, I don't know, I can't remember what happened in this service or, or the next service and the last service, but combined, including our Crescent campus, there were 23 people that received Jesus last week in this church. That's amazing, right? We celebrate that because that's, that's phenomenal. People crossing over from life to death, people giving their lives to Jesus, surrendering themselves to Jesus. But, but I want you to see this. Just like that was a miracle, Naaman is so selfish and so self-centered to what God is trying to do in his life and in the lives of the people around him that he almost missed that miracle. Because watch what happens in verse 11. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me. Do do you see that? He's mad. I thought he'd come out to see me. Naaman, dude, I I thought this guy just told you how to be healed. Why are you so mad? Because the prophet didn't come out. The supposed man of God didn't come out and talk to me. He sent some other dude. Does this other dude even know what he's talking about? Does he know who I am? Do you guys know who I am? I am Naaman. And then he says this, I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy. I mean, not only did I expect him to come out and bow down to me and worship me and all this other stuff, I wanted him to wave his hand over me, me. Me, 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 me. That's his attitude. Wave his hand over me, over the leprosy, and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. It's all about me. It's not about anybody else. I made this trip. I made this journey. I brought all this stuff with me. I came here for him to take care of me because he's used to being served. And in this moment, he's not served. And when he's not served properly, how he believes he should be served, he gets mad. But watch what Jesus does. Because see, when we meet Jesus, we can't stay the same. We say that all the time around here. It's a spiritual impossibility. It really is. You cannot have an encounter with Jesus and walk away the same. When we meet Jesus and we surrender our lives to him, the work of God immediately begins in our lives and and we begin to be changed. Remember, we said again last week that, that going to the Jordan River is symbolic of Jesus and there's dedication to the process, meaning there's work. It's not just a one time thing, like, like we're, 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 we're after it and we're going after Jesus with every bit of us and dipping yourself in. Like that's complete dedication. We're dedicated dedicated to Jesus. Watch what happens, verse 15. This blows my mind. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. This is after he got healed. So he went in, he dipped himself seven times, he came back up, and remember we talked about his skin was like that of a baby. All of his skin, completely restored. Everything in him made brand new. And so then they they go and they find Elisha, and now they see him. And they stood before him, and Naaman said, now I know There is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your what? From your servant. Do do you see that? He went from having to be served to now calling himself a servant. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can make that type of change in somebody that fast. See, uh, up until this point, everything about Naaman 
is about Naaman. Everything in this passage is all about Naaman being served. And, and here he literally says, uh uh-uh. uh. No, no, no. I want everybody to listen. I want everybody to hear me. It, it's not about me. It's, it's not for me. I'm the servant. I'm here to serve. And let me pause real quick here and just say thank you to every single volunteer that works in our church every single Sunday. All of you who volunteer to serve. We, we can't do church without you. I don't say that enough. I don't tell you that enough, but we can't. Thank you for serving purposefully and sacrificially in this place because literally we cannot do church without you. And, and here, here we see this play out. Here we see Naaman as a servant. Naaman calls himself a servant. This is the work of humility in his life. He goes from being arrogant and smug to being a servant. That's crazy because he's a warrior. And warriors are not supposed to be a servant. Warriors are, are not supposed to be um, out helping other people. They're, they're supposed to be big and strong and mighty and feared. But see, in the church world, we confuse humility with weakness. Do you know that? When you talk about somebody being humble and somebody serving and somebody bringing themselves down, maybe, maybe a, a few levels of what they're used to doing and helping somebody, we, we say that's weakness. But let me ask you this question. Wasn't Jesus always humble? The, the, the answer is yes. Don't, don't be like, I don't know. The answer, I'll give you the answer. Jesus was always humble. And, and so don't miss this. I really need to preach on this sometime. But, but humility allowed Jesus to weep over Jerusalem. Like there's a time where he's, he's actually up on the hill and he's weeping over Jerusalem. And, and we see that as, as he's sad. And, and, and we see that a lot of people say that, that it was a moment of weakness for Jesus. I, w- I want you to hear me. Like, like humility is not weakness. Because humility also allowed Jesus to make a whip in Jerusalem. Humility, a lot of times, is strength exercising itself only when it's absolutely necessary. That's another message for another time, but it's here in the text, so I wanted to say it. So we see this work in Naaman where he begins to be a servant, where he begins to become humble, and and he calls himself that. And only Jesus can do that. By by the way, um, if you're here and there was ever a time where Jesus started to do a work in you, but you drifted away and, and you feel like it's too late, it's not too late. Ask him to start doing that thing in you that he started doing before you began to drift away, and, and he'll start doing it again. He will. He's faithful. He will bring his work to completion. That, that's a promise that's made in his word, that he who begins a good work in you will bring it about, and, and, and you will be complete. That's a promise in the Bible. Amen? Once he begins a work in you, or as soon as you surrender, he begins that work in you, which leads to point number two. Renewing our minds takes time. Renewing our minds takes time. Man, I wish somebody would have told me this right away. I, I mean, I, I, I wish and my hope and my prayer is that we hear this and we begin to get this down as a church. Let, let, let me explain it like this. This will illustrate this point well. Um, how many of you, don't raise your hand because I really don't want to know, um, but how many of you in this room are single. When I say single, I mean you're, you're not married. Because boys, if there ain't a ring on it, there's this, this still time for her, for somebody else. And so, I'm, anyway, just saying, um, that's a marriage message for some time. Now, let me tell you, single people, something. If you're here and you're single, right now, 
you know more about the subject of marriage than you will ever know. Because when you get married, I don't care how many books you've read, I don't care how many conferences you've attended, I don't care how many personality assessments you have taken, you married another human being, and they're selfish, and you're selfish. You are going to fight, and you are going to have to change your mind about some things. Men. I can only speak for the men. I only know the men. Like, like you're going to have to change your mind about how many pillows you allow on your bed. You're going to have to change your mind about how many products are in your shower. Amen, men? Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Single men, I guess you can. How about this? How many of you, you can raise your hand on this, don't have any kids? Raise your hand. Okay, there, there's a few, right? There, there's a few. Right now, you know more about kids than you will ever know. Because when you have kids, they don't follow any script, do they? Like, like, seriously. And then when you get the first one, and they're an angel, I promise you the second one going to be demon-possessed. Hypothetically speaking, I heard from a friend, just, just saying. Here's the point. Would you say that when you get married, you've got to renew your mind, yes or no? Yes. When you have kids, do you have to renew your mind, yes or no? Does it take time for that to happen, yes or no? The same thing is true spiritually. As followers of Jesus, we have to renew our minds. But it takes time to change the way that we think. And and you might say, Ryan, how do you get this? It's right here in the story. Watch this, verse 16. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. Now, the first time I read that, I was like, Elijah, you're an idiot. Because if you remember at the beginning of this, when he sets out on his journey, he takes a bunch of gold and a bunch of silver with him and 10 sets of clothes. And, and I'm like, Elisha, he's got 150 pounds of gold, man. Like, you could take that. You could buy a new house, a new chariot, like new camels, like whatever. He's got clothes for you. He's got all kinds of stuff. Why did he do this? Why did he say no? I'm going to tell you next week. You're going to have to come back next week to hear. Next week, we're going to finish the series, and the way we're going to end it, it's going to be absolutely amazing. I know you're thinking, oh, see what you did. You tried to trick me into coming back next week. Can't get nothing past you. Um, so Elisha, <laughs> Elisha says, I'm not taking any gifts. And, and though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. And, and then it gets, it gets weird. Verse 17 is strange. Then Naaman said, all right. But please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. That's weird, isn't it? Isn't that strange? Isn't that weird when you really think about it? Like, seriously, like, all right, you, you, you won't take any gold. Um, listen, um, I got a couple mules over here. Uh, can I put some dirt on my mules and take it home? That's weird, unless you understand the time, unless you understand their culture. See, in this time period, in that culture, in the ancient world, they were polytheistic. At Central, we're monotheistic. That, that means we believe in one God, the one true God who sent his one and only son to die for us. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The one who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. The one who tells us there's no other way to the Father except through him. That, that's who we believe in. But they, they believed in lots of gods. And they believed that there was the God of Israel and the God of 
Aram, where, where they were from. There's like lots of gods. And they believed that when they went to war, like this god would fight this god. And so in other words, like when Aram went to war against Israel, they believed the god of Aram was fighting against the god of Israel. And so if Aram won the battle, then, then the god of the land of Aram was stronger than the god of the land of Israel. So land was very important because it represented the, the magnificent of the god that that nation or that tribe served. And so when Naaman is saying, I'm going to take some dirt back home, I load up my mules and I want to take some dirt. He's basically saying, hey, I, I, I've, I've, I've understood. I've, I've now got clarity of who the one true God is. And there are no other gods. But I can't worship God unless I worship the God, or unless I worship God on the dirt that he is over. I, I can't worship the God of my land knowing that he's the God only over this. You see what I'm saying? There's this salvation experience that's happening in Naaman. He has this genuine salvation experience, but then he begins to filter it through his way of thinking. Like, hey, you know, there's no way that I can go back home and and be on my land. I I need to take this land with me. And, And the reason why he's thinking that is because nobody's there teaching him immediately. It takes time to learn. It takes time to renew our minds. Did, did he need dirt to worship God? No, we know that, but he didn't know that. It takes time to renew our minds. I, that's one of the things I wish somebody would have told me, because listen, there's this verse in Romans chapter 12. It's verse 2. It, it tells us this. Do not copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Now, let me tell you what happened to me and what happened to some of you probably. Some of us have PTSD from that verse because your, your pastor, your preacher, your, your friends, your Christian circle use that verse to beat you over the head with it over and over and over again. Don't copy the customs and behaviors of this world. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't dance. I heard that all the time. You can't dance. Reality is like he can't. Like, that's the reason he told you, you can, <laughs> you can do it pretty good, but he ain't got no rhythm. You, he can't do it. Like, when I first became a Christian, I remember preachers using, using that verse to say you could not do certain things, um, especially secular music. Couldn't listen to secular music. And so you'd have church groups, adults, but, but especially youth groups, having gatherings where they would say, hey, bring all of your worldly stuff. Um, bring all of your tapes and your CDs and your records, and, and they would have a fire, and you would throw them into a fire. And there was always one weird dude that would always go. As soon as you threw something in, they'd be like, oh my gosh, the smoke. Did you see it? It looked like a demon. No, it didn't. You smoked weed before you got here. Should have thrown that in the fire, really. Don't copy the behavior. That, that, that verse doesn't mean you can't dance. It doesn't mean you can't listen to secular music. Well, what does it mean? Well, that would be, that would mean something like, you know, like if the world is doubling down a mindset that you know is wrong, that the Bible clearly says this is not the way that God thinks. Like this is not in line with what God is saying. Don't copy it. That's what it's saying. If the world's lost its mind, don't lose your mind and copy it. Let let me give you a hypothetical example that'll make just about everybody in the room highly uncomfortable, all right? Hypothetically speaking, let's say the world around us is saying that men can have 
babies. They can't. They can't. Listen, that's not hate speech. I don't hate anybody. I really don't. But men cannot have babies. I know that's not popular to say. I can feel the tension in the room, and so I'll say it again. Men can't have babies. Well, you understand, Pastor, there's a pregnant man emoji. You know what? There's a poop emoji, too. That doesn't mean that's what I am. Men can't have babies. I was watching this TikTok video the other day. It was a segment from this documentary, and there was this guy on there, and he was crying. And he's like, oh, I just, I just so want to get pregnant. And I'm like, dude, you can't. You can't have a kid. You don't have the parts to have a kid. L- listen, I don't care if people get ticked at me. I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm just trying to let you know, like, we have to speak the truth in love. The church is too silent on things because they're too afraid of getting canceled or shut down or so-and-so isn't going to come. Start telling the truth. I'm just following the science, too, by the way. All right? Isn't that what we've been told? So don't copy the behavior and the customs of the world, but let God transform you. Let who? God. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you what? Think, think, think by the way you think, not the way you behave. Listen, Jesus Christ did not die on a cross to establish this behavior modification program filled with rules and regulation to continually try to condemn people that are trying their best to follow him. He didn't do that, but it takes time. It takes time to renew our minds. See, one of the problems in the church world today is we'll take a brand new follower of Jesus and we want them to become in one week what it took us 10 years to become. But it takes time for God to renew our minds and change the way that we think. See, this is his promise at the end of this verse. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. As, you renew, as God renews your mind, transforms the way you think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect So how do we renew our minds? Well, let me give you three ways. These aren't the only ways, but these are three really good ways. Number one, church attendance. Church, uh, regularly attending church. Because I'm telling you, being in the presence of Jesus with with other believers absolutely impacts us. And you know this, or you wouldn't be here, right? See, this is the thing I've noticed. Many of you have heard me say this before. The first step away from God is usually a step away from the people of God. It really is. Once a person drops out of church, it's only a matter of time before they drift somewhere spiritually that they said they would never go. We have never, ever, ever experienced that in the history of the church like we have in the past three years since COVID. People were here. They were doing great. They were growing. They stopped coming for whatever reason. They got out of the habit of regular attendance, and they've drifted away. And spiritually, they're in a place where they're not close to Jesus. I'm telling you this. I'll put my cards on the table here. I've got two goals every single week when I get up here on stage. Number one, I want to teach you something new. And number two, I want to remind you of something maybe you have forgotten. And and, and one of those two things I want for every single person that walks in here every single Sunday. Besides this having an experience and an encounter with Jesus, I want those. And listen to me. If there's ever a time in this church where you come in and you don't feel like you're in the presence of Jesus— and you don't feel like the teaching is challenging, and you don't feel like you're being taught something new or being reminded of something else, I would encourage you to find a church that will do that for you. Because at the end of the day, I want you to grow as a person. I really do, but I also want you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I really do want that. Attending church. 
a place where we can step into the presence of Jesus. Now, I'll say this lovingly and as pastorally as I can, but I'm going to say it very, very, very firmly. Attending church means stepping into the room. You know, like you know there's something more real in the room. Am I right? You're all in the room. You should be saying amen right now, right? So attending church. The second thing that helps us renew our mind is worship music. Worship music. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I listen to all kinds of music. I'm all over the place. Worship music is not my go-to. Like, all, like I, I listen to Metallica, Eminem, ACDC, NWA, Taylor Swift. I know I shouldn't confess that out loud, but, but I mean, you know I'm going to, to see Tay-Tay in November. Front row VIP seats, me and Chloe. Like, it's going to be phenomenal, and I don't even care how much you make fun of me of it. It's going to be great. But all kinds of, like, except country. I don't, I don't listen to a lot of country music. That sounds weird. But I'm telling you, if I'm worried and I'm freaked out or I'm melting down or I've got a day where my anxiety is just up, I put on a worship song. I listen to worship music. Um, there's this chick, Rita Springer. She, she's my go-to. Like, I, I, just, I just put it on and I, and I just listen to it. Because here's what I know. This is what I know from personal experience. It's impossible to worry when we get caught up in worship. It's impossible to be consumed with anxiety when we're consumed with the presence of Jesus. It's impossible to be freaked out when we understand that Jesus is coming all out after us. I'm telling you, if you want to get into the presence of Jesus, put on a worship song and just listen to it over and over and over and over again. I I guarantee it'll change the way you think. And then the third thing, read God's word. Read the Bible. Read God's word, because here's a promise that I will make you. When you read God's word, you read God's will. Now, I know that the Bible can be incredibly frustrating, and and we'll talk about that at another time, but here's the promise that I will make. God has a a plan for your life, and he shows us, and he speaks to us through his word. God, God tells us in the Bible, Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. Now, I don't have time to get into this today, but the metaphor here is powerful. Everybody in this room, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. You would all agree that we live in a dark world, yes or no? Dark world. And the Bible helps us to navigate through the darkness because God is constantly going to be showing us our next steps. But he's not gonna show you step number three until you take step number two, which brings us to step number three, pressure, Struggle doesn't mean that we're losing the fight. It means we're fighting the fight. I wish somebody would have told me that. I wish somebody would have told me when persecution happens, when, when you're struggling, when, when, you, when you feel like everything is, is just hopeless, it, it doesn't mean that you're losing the fight. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you and he's left you all alone. It means you're in the fight. Listen to me. If you're in this room and you feel like you're in a spiritual struggle, I want to say to you, congratulations, you're fighting the fight. Now, I want to teach you this because I feel like in the church world, we've lied for a long time. In fact, let me tell you what we get told. I I just heard this the other day. I was listening to some some podcasts and some preaching podcasts, and and I I heard two different people this week say this. And I've heard this so many times from pulpits. I I hear, and maybe you've heard this too, a person who walks with Jesus will never struggle with sin. That is a huge flipping lie. And here's what's crazy. That gets taught in so many churches. 
Like there are churches that if I walked into and I preached and I said that statement, it would get an amen. Like, amen, preacher, preach it. Let them have it. A people walk with Jesus, they never struggle with sin. And if they're sinning, they ain't walking with Jesus. Oh my gosh, that's so not true. Now I know some of you might be thinking, no, that is true. Well, let me just, let me just instead of being hypothetical and using an illustration here, let's look at the people who actually walk with Jesus. Peter. Peter walked with Jesus for a few years, right? Did he struggle with sin, yes or no? <laughs> yeah. Judas. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. Did he struggle with sin? <laughs> oh, yeah. Thomas. Did he struggle? Yep. James and John. Did they struggle? Absolutely. Paul? Yep. Everybody. Everybody. And they were closer to Jesus than any of us have ever been. What in the world would make us so spiritually arrogant to think that we are not going to fight sin? Come on now, seriously. See, the problem isn't struggling with sin. The problem is when we stop fighting the sin, when we give in to sin. The problem is when we can sin and not struggle anymore. That's the issue. See, the reason I bring that up is because Naaman is super honest about his struggle that he's about to step into. And honesty is not something that's valued in most churches. Like, and, and you know this is true. We tend to get fake when we come into church, right? We're not honest. People say, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. All hell's breaking loose, but I'm fine. Everything's great. But I, but I want you to notice how real and raw that Naaman is right here with what he's about to say. I love this. I, I love this, and I wish we could all model this in our lives. Verse 18, he says, however, this is after he asked the dirt and mule thing. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes in the temple of the god of Rimmon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Now, if you're a bystander and you're just standing there or you're Elisha and Elisha says this to name and the man of God, like you're going to start backing off. I mean, th- this is kind of like, you, you know, at like family gatherings when people are getting along and then somebody brings up politics or sports and religion and it gets intense and you're like, Pfft. Uh-uh, man, I'm not getting into that because it's, it's wrong, right? That, that's happening. The reason this is intense is because Elisha is the prophet. Like, he is the man. And if you read through the scriptures, like, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, Elisha is a little bit emotionally unstable. That's why I love him. Like, he reminds me of me. Seriously, he, he's walking down the road one time. Go read this story. I'm, I'm, like, getting way close to being over time. But he's walking down the road one time, and the Bible says 42 kids come out, and they start making fun of him. They start making fun of his bald head. And, and he doesn't attack them. He just, he just says a prayer and calls two bears out of the woods. Two bears come running out of the woods, eat all the kids. Some of you are like, what's that prayer? I need that later tonight. I don't know it. <laughs> That's why my kids are still alive. Anyway, um, Naaman's basically saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to have to go into the temple of this false god. I'm going to have to bow down. It's, it's not real. I'm going to have to fake it. But I don't really mean it. And if you're Elisha, you're thinking, like, no, man, you, you can't do that. Like, there's these verses, there's these books, there's these conferences, these podcasts, all kind of things that tell you no. But see, Elisha has this crazy idea that he trusted God as much after Naaman's salvation as he did before. And he doesn't try to control Naaman. He doesn't, he doesn't try himself to, to force a behavior modification plan on Naaman like churches do. What, what, Na- what Elisha says is mind-blowing. This is the response verse 19. Just go in peace. Go in peace. Doesn't tell him all of these things. Go in peace. 
And so Naaman started home. And if you're standing there, you're like, that's it? Go in peace? That's, that's all you got for him, man of God? Actually, the Hebrew word here is the word shalom. And shalom means God is with you, God be with you. In other words, he's like, you know what, Naaman? You've just essentially met Jesus. I'm not going to weigh you down with rules and regulations and tell you what to do, what you can do, what you cannot do. But Naaman, here's what you need to understand. When you leave, God is with you. No, no matter what you do, God is with you. And God has begun working in you. And, and God will bring forth what you need to do. God will lead you, Naaman, to make the right decision in his time. Now, he doesn't give him permission to sin. He doesn't say, well, yeah, you go do it. You sin. He doesn't tell him that. He says, hey, God is with you, and God will show you what to do because his word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. What if the church could trust God like that today? See, if you're in this room, I want you to understand two things before you leave today, just two, (laughs) two things. First one is this, Jesus is in you. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ lives inside of you through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason this is remarkable is because that means that nothing can conquer you. Nothing can define you unless you let it. Jesus Christ living in us, listen, he literally came from death to life. And and the Bible says that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. If he can do that, then nothing, nothing is impossible for anybody in this room, anybody watching online. You can overcome an addiction. You can overcome anxiety. You can overcome suicidal thoughts. You can overcome anything outside these walls that are coming after you. You can overcome your own mindset that is coming after you. Not because you are strong or we are strong, because Jesus is in you and that's what he does. All he does is win, and he wants us to win in him. Jesus is in you. So these are the second thing. Jesus is for you, and Jesus wants better things for you than you want for you. Again, the Bible says that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are greater than our ways. And so as we walk out of here today, let me ask you one final question. What would happen to a body of believers that believe that Jesus is in me and Jesus is for me? Because if we really believe that's true, then nothing is impossible, nothing. Listen, the world can't define you if you know that Jesus is in you and Jesus is for you. Naaman is figuring that out. He was about to see it play out. What's keeping you from believing it today? Let's pray.